This is another opportunity, ladies and gentlemen, to welcome you to the rebroadcast of, or the broadcast really, because it's the first and only time it'll be heard, of the worship services of the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church. We welcome you to this Sabbath day, a day of special celebration. It's rally day here at Abundant Life on the corner of J and Doolittle, 1720 J Street, 647-2627. You may call and we'll be happy to share the messages you'll hear now or any of the former that you would like to have. And also to sign you up for Bible studies. So whoever you are, wherever you are, we hope that you are in love with the Word of God. We love the Bible here, and we'll be talking about our Savior from special concerns today, and those concerns begin with Christian education. On this rally day here at Abundant Life, we have with us the two individuals that this congregation has produced to church service. When the schools of the prophets, from which the church school system was born, were established, they were begun with the idea, as much as anything else, of producing workers back to the church. The churches can't continue to form or to function without our producing individuals to lead. And so these schools, as much as anything else, are for that purpose as well. And today, it's my good pleasure to present to you the two individuals that this church has nurtured and produced to ministry. And I'm going to ask them to come up at this time. I'm going to ask Pastor Campbell on my right, Pastor Brown on my left. And we're going to have another mic here so that you can hear them both. Because I want you to know who they are and get a little taste of their experience as they came along here in Las Vegas. Let's begin with you, Pastor Brown. Do I understand that you were born in Las Vegas or where were you born? I was born in um, Moses Lake, Washington, and my dad was transferred here to Nellis Air Force Base. At what age? I believe I was about... uh, eight years old. And how did you become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Well, um, I had a, um, there was a house fire. Um, The devil literally literally tried to take me out, and uh, my dad saved me from the fire, and the Adventist Church, by way of the Dorcas Society, because this was around Thanksgiving, brought a Thanksgiving basket. And uh, my dad said, well, we got to go to that church and thank them until I found out they went to church on Saturday. And, of course, to make a long story short, that's how I got baptized. Uh, And i like to thank Eric Morris because he's the one who introduced the message to me. You mean this Eric Morris? Yes, sir. Amen for Eric Morris, everybody. God used Eric to... To introduce you and your family. Now, uh, another word before we go to Pastor Campbell. Did you attend church school in this city or was it strictly Oakwood? Uh, I attended Pine Forge Academy. Ah, so you were at Pine Forge. How long were you there? 
Two years. And then to Oakwood? Yes, sir. All right, and that's where we met. That's right. Right? One of my students there. We'll come back in just a minute. But now, DeAndre, uh, Pastor Campbell, tell us how you were introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what sort of church school education did you have? I was introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, through, I guess it was call portering. Um, Sandra Anita Smith at that time uh, came across the street and knocked on my mother's door. And um, my mother brought myself and my brother over here, and we had Pathfinders, and we were introduced to the church that way. So you went to Pathfinders meetings? Correct. We have a good Pathfinders thing going here now. I hear you do. Do you know Adrian Brown? Yes, yes. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, he's our Pathfinder general. Now, look, uh, did you go to church school in the city here? I did. I went to uh, Las Vegas Junior Academy for third and fourth grade. And did you go later on in your experience? I did. I went to San Pasquale Academy uh, for a year and a half. And then for college, you went to a beautiful school up in Northern California? That's right. I attended uh, Pacific Union College. Pacific Union College. So both of you were produced through or nurtured largely through church school education. Now, when you finished Oakwood, what path did your career take? I started my ministry in the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, as an assistant pastor uh, and a church school teacher uh, at the Seventh-day Adventist School in St. Croix. In St. Croix, and from there? And from there, I went on to the Allegheny West Conference and uh, have been pastoring now for the past uh, 26 years. And what cities did you pastor? Uh, Ashtabula, Ohio, Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio. Um, oh, wow. And all these places, did you tell them you were from Las Vegas? Oh, absolutely. You owned us here? <laughs> absolutely. All right. And uh, where are you now? And tell us about your family. Well, currently I serve as the ministerial stewardship director of the Allegheny West Conference. Huh. And uh, I'm married to Grace uh, Brown of Zambia, Africa. And uh, we have two sons. Uh, my oldest one is 21. He's a senior honor student at Ohio State University studying international law. And my youngest uh, son is a freshman at Oakwood University um, studying pre-med. I was waiting to hear the magic words. <laughs> you, you said them. You said them. Thank you. Thank you. We'll let you rest and get ready for the next thing. Now. Pastor Campbell, uh, tell us about your experience at, at Pacific Union College. Yeah, well, at Pacific Union College, I had the opportunity to take theology and um, uh, participate in the ministries there. We got the opportunity to start the first black forum uh, at Pacific Union College, and uh, I was a student chaplain for all my five years there. And I understand you have a number of family members that are a part of this church family here, the congregation. Most definitely, most definitely. Would you ask them to stand? <laughs> Can my family please stand? Amen. Amen to all the Campbell family. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, you told us last night how they supported you. And your mother is here. I think I saw Michelle stand. There she is. Stand up again. Wave your hand. This is the lady. Thank you. you. You should have heard what he told us about her last night, how she worked so hard and pushed so hard to keep him in church school and to rear him in the right way. It was a thrilling story. And as soon as we have had our, well, first of all, what are you doing now? 
Right now, I work at Real Indo Adventist Academy in Northern California, and I am the uh, marketing recruiter director. So and I understand you travel around. I travel all over the world, and it's, You've it's been a to privilege. China. I've been to China. I go back to China this year. And From Korea. Las Vegas to China. From Las Vegas to China. All right. We're proud of you. We're proud of both of them, are we not, brothers and sisters? And you know, thank you. You may be seated. The fact of the matter is that these young children who are right here right now in our church school, 20, 30 years from now, less perhaps, if time lasts, some of them will be doing the same things. And that's what our sacrifices are all about. That's why we love Christian education, and that's why we thank you, church, for your support of our church school and of our young people. This is what it's all about. And may time last no longer than the Lord will, but for whatever period, may we see our young men and women. And there are others, I know, who may not be in church work, but they are faithful church members, faithful tithers, faithful employees in the city or wherever they work who will seeing to it that the church goes forward. So amen to Christian education. Amen to these, our guests. And after we shall have had another message in song, we will hear from both of these gentlemen. And I've asked the younger senator to make way for the older senator. And uh, after... Pastor Campbell will have given us a few words. We'll hear the full message from Elder Marvin Brown, the Ministerial Secretary of the Allegheny West Conference. Thank you. Our message and song, and then our speakers. Brother Eric. People steal, they cheat and lie for wealth and what it can buy. But don't they know on the judgment day, gold and silver gonna melt away? If your heart 
You know, when I was young, we grew up listening to you guys sing. And um, there was a point that I wanted to be like you guys and sing. And I remember when we joined the mass choir and little Quincy Reddick and I went up for the solo. And um, not only did I not receive the solo that day, but I was told to go to the back part of the bass and sing very quietly. So my dreams were quickly crushed. <laughs> But it's been a true privilege to um, be part of this church. Who knew that if you planted a seed in the desert, that it can actually grow things? And some of you are wondering, what do I mean by that? You don't know that there used to be a picket, I mean, a gated fence around this area where you now sit. And uh, Sister Everson would get us up on a Sunday morning after making us biscuits and would take us out here with hoes and shovels and we would clean up the weeds. Who knew that the dream that they had from Highland Square would then become what you people sit in now, which is now abundant life. And there's a lot of life in it. Father God in heaven, we just want to thank you and uh, acknowledge you, Lord, for being where you are right now and that is in this place. We thank you for dwelling in our lives, dwelling in our bodies, dwelling in our souls and our hearts. Now we pray, Father, that you will be with us. Be with our preacher, uh, Brother Pastor Brown, and let his words flow. Let us be encouraged by what we hear and inspired to go out and do the ministry that you have given us to do. And all these things we pray and say in Jesus' name. Amen. The privilege... It's always a great opportunity to come back and um, stand before people who helped you get to where you are now. And if I had a list, all the people that helped me um, to where I am now, it would take us all Sabbath. So I won't do that. But what I will say is that those of you who have done that, you know who you are. From the bottom of my heart, from my wife, Elisa's heart, and from my two young children, Joseph and Jordan, we thank you. And I'm truly better for knowing you. But not only from the physical help, but for the mental and the prayerful help you give us still to this day. We thank you for that. The, I've been tasked with the duty of making way for the main speaker, and that's always a good thing. Someone told me once John the Baptist was tasked with something of the sort, and it was a good message that came after it. So let's hope that we're going to receive another great message coming from the pulpit today from Pastor Brown. And I just had an opportunity of sitting in Dr. Rock's office with him. And um, 
he told me of the story of Matt Kelly. I attended Matt Kelly for almost a year, I think it was, and I was very young. And uh, he told me he actually knew Mr. Kelly. And um, he told me he was a, quite a figure. And I think I'm just happy to know someone else that's been in Las Vegas during that time. Las Vegas is a different place to grow up in. I now rear my kids in Northern California, and they grow up around trees and the Russian River. They grow up walking outside without having to lock their doors. They can get up, and they, they live two houses over from their grandparents, and they can do everything they want to do. But in Las Vegas, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, um, as I stepped into my dad's house the other day, I came in, didn't even lock the door, and he's like, why aren't you locking the door? And it just completely it threw me off. I had forgotten where we live at. <coughs> Las Vegas is a difficult place to raise children. But this church has done an exceptional job of that. There's a list of students, of people, of young people that I can name that would go on forever. There are people such as myself, Al Springfield, Chris Morris, who I just spoke to yesterday, I mean on Friday, up at Monterey Bay Academy, Zachary Smith, Ian Sean Smith, Janine Smith, the Peterson children, Shantae, Mazel, and the list goes on and on. Crystal, as a church, if they shall know you by your fruits, then they must know you very well because you can be proud of so many of those names and an unspoken names that can keep going on and on. I now work at Rio Lindo Adventist Academy where right now presently you have four young individuals that are attending seven-day Adventist boarding school from this church. Seventh-day Adventist boarding schools is a dying breed. There was a time where seven-day Adventist Christians, it was not... It was not an option. It was a necessity. It was a must that you send your children away to seven-day Adventist schools. I work in the marketing and recruiting department. I am in charge of the whole student body at Rio Lindo Adventist Academy. I travel all over the world, and it's a privilege to do that. But I go to each and every individual parent. I sit in their house, and day after day, I hear so many reasons why they cannot and choose not to send their children to seven-day Adventist schools. A boarding school, I will admit, is not for everyone. In Rio Lindo Adventist Academy, is not for every student. But there are so many more. There are Pine Fours. There's Monterey Bay Academy. There's Auburn. There's Thunderbird Academy. There's so many different colleges. There's Pacific Union College, Atlantic Union College, Oakwood College, Andrews University. And the list goes on and on and on. And I implore you, to stop fleeting from our schools. They produce something that is just, it's an unbelievable talent. I can tell you right now that your four individuals from this church that attend Rio Lindo Adventist Academy, one, the youngest, the freshman, has the highest GPA, and that is right now 3.7 as a freshman, which is an unbelievable feat. I'm so proud of that because he actually belongs to my bloodline. His name is Jordan Lewis. And just for some new basketball shoes, he'll be raking my leaves tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> Kelly, not a native from this church, moved this way from St. Louis, came all the way out here, and told his grandmother that he must find a church 
to go to, walked into these doors, you accepted him with arms open, the child is now a junior, came into Rio Lindo Adventist Academy, reading at a sixth grade reading level, has now a 3.6 GPA as a junior in boarding school, high school, taking, I must add, AP classes. An unbelievable feat for such a young man who now reads well, speaks well, well, he still talks with his, you know how Kelly talks. <laughs> Jay Lewis, a junior, <clears throat> makes us so proud each day on the way he acts. He walks around as a leader in his first year as a junior in his boarding academy. As a matter of fact, he was the, it's the first time in, real, in the last 15 years, because of this student, Jay Lewis was able to lead Rio to their tournament to take third place in their own football tournament. And all the students, they loved watching him play. They would say, man, your cousin, he can run. Man, he's so fun to be around. It's a privilege to watch him. Dominique, the, the soul girl, came there last year as a work from her mom and Pastor Lee Wars and his wife, imploring me, Brother Campbell, you got to take this girl. You don't understand. This girl's a, a talent. Isn't that what you told me? And when she got there, she was so lost. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, I don't know if I can listen to home anymore. They tell me some wrong stuff. <laughs> Lo and behold, within two months there, helping out in the music department, the hardest worker that you will find in the dorm anywhere. with a solid GPA as a sophomore. Adventist education, production from this church, your tithe money, your offering, your prayers, your actions coming back to you tenfold. It was the Lord who said, I will not let my word come back to me void. The scripture reads like this. And when in the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, Lima, Sabbati, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In all of existence, something we cannot even understand throughout all of eternity, the three of them were one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all knew what the other thought. As a matter of fact, during creation, they were all in agreement. They understood, Jesus understood what the Father would need him to do. The Holy Spirit understood his role. Jesus understood the Holy Spirit's role. That's why he said, I must go away because someone greater than me can come and teach you of me teach you of the Father. For the first time in history, all the beings of the world, of creation, are watching this one moment. And the most striking word is produced out of our Lord and Savior's mouth. An extra biblical writer said that sin was so potent, so sharp, that when Adam walked out of the garden, he understood sin when he saw a leaf fall from the tree. 
Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, when he saw a leaf fall from the tree, he understood sin. And at this point in time, sin is showing his face. And Jesus, for the first time in his, who, however you can describe him, he says a word that he has never had to say to the Father or to the Holy Spirit. And he says it with a loud voice. He says, my father, my father, why? For the first time in history, God asks God, why? The answer is because of you and because of I. But sin is so potent that it separated God. What will you do with that? I'll let the church say amen again. So grateful for this wonderful pleasure and privilege to be here today. I especially want to thank a man with whom I've looked up to for most of my ministerial life, Dr. Calvin Rock. He truly is a rock. Trust me when I say that. He's a man of velvet and a man of steel a leader among leaders. He had done more for Oakwood College than Oakwood had seen in many, many years. And uh, I am just so deeply humbled uh, to be here in his pulpit. Very honored. I want to thank DeAndre. Actually, DeAndre, I didn't meet Matt Kelly. Uh, it was Mr. Kelly. I don't know if they were related or not, but uh, Mr. Kelly uh, used many a belts on us when we didn't do our homework. <laughs> and uh, uh, it is just such a pleasure for me to be here to talk a little bit about our Lord and Savior, and to celebrate with you this wonderful, wonderful event called Christian Education. Whoever would have thought that 46 years ago, as I attended Matt Kelly, that right across the street there would be a church school that would shape the minds of young children for time and eternity. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. And I have to give a, another shout out to uh, the queen bee, Sister Claire Rock, still as gorgeous as ever, and uh, it's a joy being here. Today, I'd like to talk with you for a few moments from this subject entitled, Our Speaker Talked About the Cross. I thought I'd get a little jump on Wall Street and talk about the crib. So before we go another step further, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we pray that as we open your word, uh, that your spirit would speak to our hearts today. And we'll give you the glory, the praise, and the honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Turn with me to Matthew, the second chapter. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> 
Matthew chapter 2, and um, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? that is born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now when they had heard the king, they had departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Who were the wise men? The wise men, or magi, were some of the most strangest characters in the Christmas narrative. How much do you all know about them? How many showed up? Did they ride camels? And how is it that they came to look for the king of the Jews when the General Conference, Pacific Union Conference, and even the Nevada, Utah Conference knew nothing about the arrival of this newborn king? Unfortunately, most of what we know about these men comes from the Hallmark Christmas cards. And yet, the history of these men is one of the most incredible elements in the Christmas story. We find this bizarre story in Matthew 2 and verse 2, where the Bible says, The wise men came and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to what, everybody? Worship him. The Magi, called wise men in Scripture, seem to appear out of nowhere. Matthew tells us practically nothing about them. We don't know what country they're from. We don't know what they believe in. We don't even know how they came to know the meaning of the star. They just show up, leave their gifts, and take off out of nowhere. And our Christmas cards and hymnals provide us very little help. The fact is, they, never, they probably never did ride in on camels as portrayed on the Hallmark Christmas cards. 
and our hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, is misleading at best. First of all, the Bible doesn't say there were three of them. The Bible says they only brought three gifts. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't say they were kings. Most likely, they were not. And as for their being oriental, Matthew doesn't say that. He just simply says that they came from the east. Now, that could be east of Asia. That could be India. History seems to indicate that most likely they were from the land of the Medes and the Persians. The ancient Greece, Greek historian Herodotus says that the Magi were a priestly caste of the Medes. Now, the Medes occupied the land east of Palestine, where we have present-day Iran. And they were active throughout Babylon and Mesopotamia. The original Magi were priests of the most ancient form of Zoroastrianism, or Eastern cult religion. Their principal element of their worship was fire. They had a fire altar that perpetually burned. They believed that the flame came down from heaven. In fact, it was the fire religion, the official religion of Persia. And it was the main religion at the time of Jesus' birth. The religion of the Magi was very similar. Get this. Very similar to Judaism. They were monotheistic, meaning like the Jews, they believed in only one God. And like the Jews, they offered blood sacrifices, which were roasted on the altar and eaten by the worshiper and the priests. Their priesthood was hereditary, just like the Levitical priesthood. And they believed in health reform, just like the Israelites. They believed that insects and reptiles were unclean. And they had specific rituals governing how to dispose and touch dead bodies. But the similarities were only counterfeits. The religion of the Magi was at best satanic, based on superstition and fear, and not on the truth as revealed by the one true God. And unlike the Levitical priesthood of Judaism, the Magi had a number of demonic practices. They practiced sorcery, astrology, wizardry, divination of dreams, and other forms of witchcraft strictly forbidden in the Bible. They were, in, a, in essence, occult practitioners. Our word magic comes from the word magi. The ancient world made little distinction between astronomy, the legitimate study of the stars, and astrology. Science and superstition were blended together and the Magi were experts at both. They were considered the scholars of their day. Hence, we call them the wise men. No Persian could become king unless he mastered the religious discipline of the Magi. Their teachings became known as the law of the Medes and the Persians, found in Daniel 6 and Esther chapter 1. It was seen as the highest unalterable legal code. The Magi served as scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, doctors, and the legal authorities of their culture. Our word magistrate comes or is a direct descendant of the word Magi. 
The Magi were highly esteemed for their amazing intuition, wisdom, and knowledge. They served as advisors to the king. They interpreted dreams. In the book of Daniel, they served in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Aha! And that might be an important clue as to how the Magi came to know and to anticipate the birth of the Savior. Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king who had destroyed Jerusalem around 587 B.C. And he had handpicked certain Jews, amongst whom were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men who were of extraordinary wisdom. And they became the rivals to the Magi. One day God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And God made Nebuchadnezzar forget the dream. In order that God might expose the hypocrisy of the Magi. And so Nebuchadnezzar called the Magi together. And he said, I had a dream. I want you to tell me the dream. And I want you to give me the interpretation. The Magi said, O king. No man on the earth can, uh, can, can tell you not only your dream and then interpret it. You tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar said, if you can't tell me the dream and interpret it, I will have you executed. And so a decree went out to execute all of the wise men. And as Ariok, the captain of the king guards, king's guard came and knocked on the door. He knocked on Daniel's door and said, Daniel, you got to get your three brothers together because you all are going to be executed. Daniel said, for what reason? He said, because you have not been able to tell the king his dream. Daniel said, well, give me an opportunity. And so Daniel got together with his three. He not only got together with his three, his three friends, he got together with God. And just like the old Negro spiritual, just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. God revealed to Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And the moment Daniel told God uh, told Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the interpretation. D uh, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel master of the Magi. Now it stands to reason that Daniel, being the master of the Magi, would have witnessed to his fellow Magi fellas. And unlike Hezekiah, who took the diplomatic approach, Daniel would begin to witness to, his, to these fellas about the true God and the Hebrew scriptures. Daniel no doubt shared with them uh, the text found in Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his feet until Shiloh come. Daniel might have shared with them Micah 5 and verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from everlasting to everlasting. No doubt Daniel shared with the Magi the 2300-day prophecy. Found in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, where the Bible says, No one therefore understand that, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore, unto, uh, to restore Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, three score, and two weeks. We know that when the decree
decree of Cyrus finally came to release the Jews from the Persian captivity, most of the Jews never went back to Jerusalem. They stayed in Babylon and Persia and intermarried with the heathens of that day. We don't know how much of the Hebrew scriptures made their way into the hands of the Magi, and we don't know how much truth filtered into their, uh, into their system. One thing we do know is that by the time the star appeared, they were familiar with the messianic promises, and they came seeking the one true God. Well, when the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, the Bible says Herod was troubled. He knew these men were kingmakers. And here they were going around Las Vegas talking about where is he who is born king of the Jews? Can you imagine the shock when these men show up out of nowhere? And as they show up, they show up with their royal costumes and they have their cone-shaped wizard hats. And they are not riding in like on camels. These fellows are riding in on white Arabian stallions. And they have a small army to come with them because they are riding into Roman or enemy territory. And to make matters worse, Herod's army was somewhere off counting folks. Herod saw this as a serious threat. And so when Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 3 that, it was, that he was troubled, it means that Homi was literally shaken to the core. He was shaking in his boots. And so he decides to take the diplomatic approach. In Matthew uh, 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 chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible says that Herod said this, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report back to me uh, that I too may come and worship him. The Magi assumed everybody in Adventism, I mean everybody in Israel. were expecting a newborn king. And yet nobody knew what in the world these rascals were talking about. We don't know how they came to know the messianic prophecies had been fulfilled. Maybe they connected Numbers 24 and verse 17. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Shaph. Being astrologers, they would have been drawn to that verse because it talks about stars. Every Christmas, astronomers try to explain the Christmas star. Some say it must have been Jupiter or a comet. Others say it was the conjunction of two planets or some other natural phenomena. But none of these explanations seem to make sense. Well, Ellen White, one of my favorite writers, once wrote in Desire of Ages, she said, 
that the wise men had seen a mysterious light in the heavens that night when the glory of God flooded the hills of Bethlehem. As the light faded, a luminous star appeared and lingered in the sky. It was not a fixed star or a planet, and the phenomena excited the keenest interest. That star was a distant company of shining angels. But of this, the wise men were ignorant. By the way, the place where they found Jesus wasn't in a stable. The Bible said in Matthew 2 and verse 11, it was in a house. So apparently this took place uh, several months after Jesus had been born. In fact, we read also that in verse 7, uh, that, that, um, uh, that Herod was so upset, or verse 16, uh, Herod was so upset that the wise men did not return to him and tell him where this newborn king was to be born until he ascertained from the time that they arrived and the time that they left was two years. And so he had every male Jewish baby from two years old and under executed. Herod wanted to make sure that he had exterminated the newborn king. Ellen White says at Bethlehem, the wise men found no royal guard stationed to protect the newborn king. None of the world's honored men were in attendance. Jesus was cradled in a manger. His parents, uneducated peasants, were his only guardians. Nevertheless, they found him in a house. The Bible says that they came into the house, verse 11. And saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now I want you to listen. Because I know some of you wondering, why would he talk about Christmas? And it ain't even Thanksgiving. <laughs> But there's a method to my madness. Listen to what Ellen White says about this. In Desire of Ages, Lord have mercy, I feel like shouting. Page 63. She says, beneath the lowly guise of Jesus, they recognize the presence of divinity. Listen to this. This is so powerful. When they came into Jesus' presence, they recognized him as king of kings and lord of lords. But they not only recognized his divinity, she says, they gave their hearts to him. Oh, you ain't got to say amen. I say amen. I brought my amen with me. Amen. These are not Vegelink and Sabbath school and Adventists. These are satanic worshipers. These are demonic folk. And yet, when they came into the presence of Jesus, 
They gave their hearts to him. Now listen to this. She says, now watch what happens after they got saved. <laughs> you see, because when you get saved, something happens to you. They gave their hearts to him as their savior. In other words, they got saved. After they got saved, then these Sabbath schooling, these non-Sabbath schooling, Benjamin Lincoln, non-Adventists, After they got saved, then they poured out their gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You don't understand what I'm talking about. You see, saved people are giving people. Because giving is for lovers only. I'll repeat it. Giving is for lovers only. Oh, do I need to use Barry White? Giving is for lovers only. You see, what you need to understand, abundant life, is that you were anointed to give. Oh, you don't want to say amen to that. See, if I had said you were anointed to receive, you'd be up there, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that you were anointed to give. You don't believe it? Okay, since you don't believe it, I got some hard-head uh, folk up in here, up in here. So since I got some hard-headed folk, I, wanna, I, I, wanna, uh, I want you to go through a little experiment with me. I said that you were anointed to give. So what I want you to do is take a deep breath. <sighs> now hold it. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. I want to see how long you're going to keep it before you give it up. Because you see, you were anointed to give. Amen. The problem with the Dead Sea is that the Dead Sea always gets, but it never gives up anything. And so it stinks, and it's a stench. You know, if you were to, I'm not trying to be gross in here, but do you know that if you just ate, 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 and you never gave? Let me give you a powerful giving text. It's found in John 3.16. The Bible says in John 3.16, what a crazy text to talk about giving. God says, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave. You notice it said that he gave. This is not bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. God so loved the world that he gave. 
his only begotten son. This is a text normally to teach us about salvation. But what you need to understand is that God is so into finances, he uses a financial term called redemption. And redemption simply means he bought you back. Amen. I redeemed you out of the marketplace of sin. I bought you back. Instead of God using money, he uses the precious blood of Jesus. You were redeemed through a financial transaction. He bought you back. And now that he has you back, he owns you. You don't even belong to yourself. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost that is within you. You are not your own. Know you not that you were bought, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. God was doing business on the cross for God, the infinite one. So to the infinite degree, love, the infinite compassion, the world, the infinite confusion that he gave, the infinite gift. Now, I want to ask you a question. We got any lovers in the house? Ah, see, the reason why you can't raise your hand, because you're thinking about sex. You've been perverted by the devil. But I'm a lover, because a lover is a giver. And if you are a giver, you a lover. So do I have any lovers in the house? In Columbus, Ohio, in my home church. Now, I'll admit, I'm so glad to be back in a church that does things the Adventist way. Hallelujah. Sometimes I got to go to a, a church across town just to recognize what it means to be an Adventist. But in my home church, they like to sing this little song. Grateful, 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 gratefulness. And then I like to look at the offering plate to see how grateful they are. Because when you're grateful, you give. The Bible says in Romans that God so loved Marvin Brown until while Marvin was at 1102 Weaver Drive making a fool out of himself, Christ died for me. Amen. He is a lover. And the first thing you know, got to know about love is when you love somebody, you give up something. Amen. Because there's a direct correlation between loving and giving. 
Don't tell me you love anybody that you're not willing to give something to. Maybe you need to stop singing that song. Oh, how I love Jesus. Stop lying. You need to just say, oh, how I like Jesus. Because you would never steal from somebody you love. Oh, you really don't have to say amen. I still brought mine with me. During the holidays, every year, I tell my sons, I ain't going out to no malls by nothing. <laughs> I don't want to be bothered with all them crazy people out there, all that uh, loud rackets and folks uh, rushing and walking all over you and fighting all that old traffic and going up in the mall, dealing with all them crazy people. I'm too old for that. I don't have time for that foolishness. Yada, 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 yada. But on December 23rd, every year, I tell my sellers, I'll be back. <laughs> Why do I go? Because I'm in love. Amen. Because anytime you love, you'll give. Michael Slaughter pastors a church in Tip City, Ohio. <clears throat> Tip City, Ohio is the most depressed town in the entire state of Ohio. Because Tip City is run by Detroit. Detroit wasn't doing so well a year ago. Michael Slaughter, the pastor of the Ginghamsburg Church, stood before his congregation. He said, Christmas is not your birthday. It's Jesus' birthday. Now, we know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I don't even go there because I ain't even trying to hear that. I like Christmas. It's the only time some mean people get nice. I like it. But he said, Christmas is not your birthday, it's Jesus' birthday. So for every dollar you spend on yourself, I want you to bring a corresponding dollar for the Darfur mission project that we have going on in Darfur, Africa. And in a church of 2,000 members, those members came back the following uh, uh, over the next month, and they brought over five million dollars. <laughs> what would happen to Highland Square if Dr. Rock were to get up and say, Christmas is not your birthday, it's Jesus' birthday? And so for every dollar that you spend on yourself. I want you to bring a corresponding dollar to support Christian education. Let me tell you what happens when, 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 when you give like that. You see, last year, our conference president, Frederick Russell, came before our people and said, I want you to give over a half a million dollars for evangelism. 
I'm saying to myself, is this dude smoking crack or what? Doesn't he realize that two years before he even got here, we tried to raise 40,000 and only came up with 15. And here this Negro talking about bringing 500,000. I'm here to tell you, Allegheny West brought the half a million. And do you know what happened in last year? Go look it up, go look it up, go look it up. The Allegheny West Conference was the highest tithing conference in the entire North American division. Because when you open up your giving and you stop being selfish and you open it up to give and help somebody else. God blesses you in a way that you can never be blessed before. And I know what I'm talking about is true. I was at the doctor's office a couple of years ago after having a major heart procedure. As this doctor was taking my med medical record, she says, do you have any other health problems? I said, well, I got cancer on the left side of my liver. I got cancer on the right side of my liver. I got pancreatic cancer all at the head of my, of my pancreas. But other than that, I'm doing all right. <laughs> she took off her glasses. She said, are you kidding me? How can you have cancer on both sides of your liver and in your pancreas and you're still walking and talking like a natural man? I said, because I'm a Malachi man. She said, a what? I said, a Malachi man. She says, what is that? I said, Malachi is an old prophet that one time said that if I would return an honest tithe and a liberal offering, he would rebuke the devourer. God would rebuke the devourer for my, my sake so that even though you got cancer, it will not take you out. And that's the reason why I want to say thank you, Lord, for all you done for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say thank you, Lord, for all you done for me. I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you for your power. I want to thank you for protection every hour. God don't need your money. You need to give. Well, let's close this sermon. I've said enough. <laughs> These were not ordinary gifts. The gifts that the Magi gave were of special significance. The gold is the most precious metal known to man. The gold seemed to have represented or symbolizes Jesus' royalty. Frankincense was usually sprinkled on the offering of that day, and that seemed to have represented Jesus' deity. But myrrh 
What a strange gift to bring to a king. It was an embalming fluid used to embalm the dead. Mixed with wine, it had an anesthetic effect. When Jesus was crucified, he was offered myrrh mixed with wine, but he refused it. The myrrh seems to foreshadows Jesus' suffering and death. We don't know whether the Magi realized the significance of their gifts. One thing we know, that these men's lives who were who was spent in sorcery, wizardry, and the occult could be forgiven and transformed by the power of the indwelling Christ. He came into his own and they received him not. Matthew says, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. They not only returned to their country by a different geographical route, they traveled a different spiritual route. These were the first Gentile converts. Wow. In my house, we have a certain ritual that we go through for Christmas. See, there are two men, two, uh, three men two sons and only one woman my wife you could play just a little softer and around Christmas time we love to talk about past Christmases who got shammed <laughs> We also like to tease one another. We like to talk about who's going to have the best Christmas. It had already been decided that Grace, my wife, would have the best Christmas this year, hands down, because I knew what I had got, homegirl. <laughs> it was going to be the Christmas of Christmases. <laughs> oh, man. It's the only time that you are allowed to lie. You can actually lie in the brown house around Christmas time. No problem. <coughs> A couple of weeks before Christmas, gifts begin again coming in. They asked me, they said, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? I said, I'd like to have a Rosetta Stone in Spanish. They laugh. <laughs> Dad, you didn't even use the typing program we brought for you. We know you're not going to learn Spanish. I said, but that's what I want for Christmas. We have a large Spanish constituency coming into our conference. 
I'm the ministerial secretary. I got to be able to communicate with these folks. That's what I want for Christmas. Rosetta Stone in Spanish. They laughed. They said, ah, right. Well, on Christmas Eve, all the gifts were under the tree. We began to lift them up, shake them, and I saw the gift that Rosetta Stone was in. I lifted it up. I said, yeah, that weighs just about right. Had the right dimensions. Hallelujah. My, my youngest son caught me. said, ah, Dad, you're looking for that Rosetta Stone, aren't you? He said, Dad, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, Dad. You're going to be speaking, speaking English for the rest of this year. Because ain't no Spanish in that box. Christmas Day arrived. We have a special tradition in the Brown House. We read the Christmas narrative. There are a bunch of other things that we do. And for the last 18 Christmases, I have every one of them on videotape. Because I want to see the expression of our faces when we open up the gifts. And sometimes you got to fake it to make it, you know. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so after we finish our little ritual, we have a ritual on how we open up the gifts. The youngest one starts first. And it goes all the way to the oldest one. So the youngest son opened up his gift. And then Christopher. And then my wife. And then myself. I opened up the first gift and it was an iTunes music card. They know I love good music. I was gracious as, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Round two, Marcellus, Christopher, my wife, me, I opened up round two and it had this beautiful wool cashmere coat. Oh, it was a coat to behold. I ran into the bathroom and looked and see how good looking I was, you know, came back and stood in front of the camera, you know. But you see, I'm waiting for the main gift. <laughs> Round three. Marcellus. Christopher. Grace. Anything left under the tree for dad? No. <laughs> now, I'm not going to lie. I was insulted. But, you know, I got my camera rolling, so I have to smile. Well, you know, <laughs> it's the thought that counts. <laughs> you know, Christmas is really for y'all. <laughs> Next round. Got to me, nothing. By this time, all the words I left in the baptismal pool. But I'm still smiling. <laughs> you know, it's really for you. 
the box with the Rosetta Stone really did not have Rosetta Stone in it. I'm furious. They go through the entire rest of the Christmas for the next half hour. When everybody had opened up all their gifts, I said, well, let me turn off the camera. My youngest said, said, Dad, no, don't turn off the camera. Christmas is not over. And I'm like, it was over, uh, it was over for me an hour ago. They said, no, Dad. My wife said, honey, your gift is not under the tree. Your gift is inside the tree. So it was the one place I hadn't looked. (laughs) She goes and reaches inside the tree and pulls out a box. A little box about this size. I'm saying to myself, a watch? I need a watch like I need a heart attack. (laughs) But I'm going to smile and fake it to make it. You know. She said, well, I want you to open it up. She said, but before you open it, I want you to come in front of the camera because I want to give you a kiss. I open up the box. As I open it up, it's got this little wireless device. I don't even know what this is. It said, oh, your gift is in the garage. I walked out into the garage and there was a brand new 2010 Toyota Prius. I was so stunned and so humiliated. All those words. I just started crying and asking God, please forgive me. They never knew. For 10 minutes I stood. They said, Dad, get in. I said, I can't. God has so much more that he wants to give you. But you're settling for a Rosetta Stone. You're settling for goofiness. You're settling for crackers when he has mansions for you. Can you imagine God has made a mansion especially for you and there is a seat in heaven with your name on it? And God says that if you overcome, I'll make you priests. And you'll sit with me in my throne even as I am sat down with my father. What profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose? Let's bow our heads. I'm already way out of time. And God, oh God, please forgive me. 
Every head is bowed, every eye is closed.